0: Well, good morning. My name is Dave Bachman. I'm excited to share with you guys today. I'm one of the deacons here. And deacon means that I get to serve the church. I get to serve uh, Pastor Mark as well. So I'm excited to come up here. I'm going to mess with Pastor Mark, though, too, this morning a little bit. And you'll, he doesn't know what's about to happen. So it'll be fun to, to see how that goes. But let me introduce the service a little bit and, uh, and talk about what we're going to get into today. today. Um, last week, Pastor Mark kicked off our Advent series Uh, mostly emphasizing Jesus as the fulfillment of God's promised redemptive plan. He was going to redeem the whole world. And we see the fulfillment of this in Christ. And that's kind of the theme of these three weeks that we're doing, um, digging into the first two chapters of Matthew. We're looking at amazing prophecies that were fulfilled in Christ. And this is something that Matthew is keenly interested in because of the audience he's writing to, this is a, primarily a Jewish audience. And so he wants to show them that from their scriptures, from the Old Testament, Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that was said about the Messiah. It's interesting to study this stuff. Uh, I had a lot of fun getting into this this week. Throughout the Old Testament, there's over 300 prophecies about the Messiah. Many are things that were foretold would happen to him. Uh, others would do to him. Others would... would uh, other prophecies were things that he would do, and then other were prophecies that sort of seemingly didn't have anyone uh, directly impacting. They just sort of happened to Jesus. And you start to study these things, and it's fascinating. So consider, consider these few things. Consider for a minute the likelihood of a person predicting today the specific date of the appearance of some great future leader 530 years from now. What are the odds of that happening? That's exactly what Daniel did. Consider for a minute the likelihood of a person predicting that today, the exact city in which the birth of a future leader would take place 700 years from now. It's exactly what Micah did. Consider for a minute the likelihood of a person predicting the precise manner of death for an unknown religious leader that would, that would, that would, uh, yeah, the, the death that he would experience 1,000 years from now. That's what David did in the book of Psalms. Every single prophecy in the Old Testament that relates to the promised Messiah is fulfilled in Jesus. Sometimes hundreds, and even, you can even, even make a case for thousands of years before they happen. It's this overwhelming evidence, this overwhelming, reliable picture proving that the Bible is true and without error. It's incredible to study and get into. Have you guys have you guys ever played the game? What are the odds? It's a, I, I hang out with college students most days, and this is something that they like to do with each other, just for fun. I want to play. What are the odds with Pastor Mark here for a minute? So, Pastor Mark, come on up for a sec. Um, come get close up here so we can get you on camera. I was only told to bring a microphone and sit in the front row, so I'm a little bit nervous right now. <laughs> okay, let me explain the rules for what are the odds. So basically, uh, I'll come up with something that I want to say. Hey, what are the odds that you would do this thing? And you will pick a number between one and whatever number you want to say, depending on how, uh, how risky you want to be. On the count of three, we will both think of a number, and we'll say the same number, or we'll say, we'll say a number. If we say the same number, then you have to do whatever we agreed upon, what the odds were, okay? Is this a number 1 to 10,000? It could be, yeah, however risky you're feeling this morning, based on whatever the, uh, the thing is that I'll present here in a moment. Okay. Um, now, here's a little twist. If for some reason we, he picks a number and I pick a number and they add up to equal the total, in other words, 1 to 100, if, they, if he picked 49 and I picked 51, then I actually have to do what, what, what the thing was, Okay. So this is, this is sort of the... the... So sticking between one and a hundred. No, no, no. You can, you can pick whatever, okay? So here we go. <laughs> what are the odds, Mark, that you will rub your belly and heartily say, ho, 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 in front of the whole church right now? What are the odds? Pick a number. That's actually what I was thinking, Gabe. Two. You can't pick two because it's going to be... <laughs> I can't pick two? I guess you could. Hang on. How does that you work? You said any number. Pick a number more than two. <laughs> Those weren't the rules, Dave. <laughs> You're throwing me off here. Okay. 5,680. Oh, okay. 5,680. All right. On the count of three, you'll think of a number and I'll think of a number, and we'll say it together. Okay? Oh, so it's between one and 5,680 yes. now? Yes, yes. Okay. I get, I'm getting how it works now. Okay. Okay. Cool, cool. All right. Here we go. One, two, three. Five, Four. All right, so you don't have to do that thing, okay? Uh, what are the odds? So do one more here. What are the odds that you will sing Mary Did You Know at the top of your lungs right now in front of the whole church? Six. We'll go with 100. 100, okay. Y'all give us a countdown. Give us a one, two, three countdown. One, two, three. Thirty-eight. Thirty-eight. Oh, man, that would have been fun. All right, you've, you passed. You're good. Okay. You're good. You can go, okay. take that. Play that game on the way home. Think of something funny you can ask and, and play, play one of the odds. The way it works, obviously, is that, you know, the, the, the odds of someone doing something that are easy. I'll see, how do I say this? The odds of someone doing something that is easy are higher, right? Someone will typically say, OK, that's not, that's not a big deal. I'll go one and two or one and ten. But the odds of someone doing something that is hard are lower. People usually tend to higher number. I'm not sure if we got that right in that little example there, but you get the point. One, one in 10 is, is a higher odds than, than one in 100. Well, a college professor attempted to determine the mathematical probability that Jesus was the Messiah. And he looked at all these prophecies. He wanted to determine what are the odds of someone fulfilling only eight of these major prophecies about the Messiah. And he had actually all these students in class. You can read this story on the internet. All these students that were in different groups and coming up with the different probabilities. How many people lived in Bethlehem between the time of Micah and the time of Christ. You know, will it be one in that number, whatever that total number might have been? And put all these numbers together. And what, he, what, what they concluded was, as all these groups were working on this, was that it was one in the 10 to the 17th power that any one person could fulfill only eight of these prophecies. Again, a lot of these things Jesus has no control of, including his birth, where, you know, who his parents would be, what would happen. Those are only eight prophecies, right? What are the odds of somebody being able to fulfill all 300-plus of these prophecies? There's, there's literally a mathematical uh, proof for Christ that you can get into as you study this stuff. I love what uh, Isaiah records in, uh, about God in Isaiah 46, 9-11. For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times Things not yet done, saying, My counsel my counsel shall stand, I will accomplish all my purpose, calling a bird of prey from the east, a man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. A simple question I want to present to you this morning is this How big is your God? How big is your God? How do you view him? How do you relate to him in light of how you view him? I want to view him as he actually is. As we jump into the passages this morning, you're immediately going to meet some interesting characters and know how they would answer the question. But I want you to keep this question before you too as you're thinking about uh, your own life. How big is your God? Let's jump in. This is a familiar story, Matthew 2, 1 through 12. We're just going to take it chunk by chunk. This is, uh, as you see here early on, a, a, a story that you've heard many times if you've celebrated Christmas. This is how it starts. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. All right, we first meet the wise men from the east here. The Greek for wise men is simply this word magi. No one quite knows how to to, uh, describe these guys. There's a lot of mystery about the magi. As we talk about it here in the service, I'm going to use the term magi because I think it really honors that there's a lot of lore about these guys. No one quite knows who they are. People have written songs about them. And and we know these things, but we're going to study who these guys were a little bit and see what we can learn about them. All right, Here's the first question. Were these guys kings, right? What does the song say? We three kings, right? Well, that mostly comes from some of the early Christian fathers. There was a guy named Tertullian who may have connected the wise men, the Magi, with some prophecies and Psalms and Isaiah about kings coming to bring gifts to the Messiah. It's more likely that they were sort of these learned men who studied stars and they knew some prophecies. We don't actually get any reference to them being, you know, truly being kings. Where were they from? Well, probably from Babylon, which was the center in the ancient world for the study of stars. Some say they may have come from Arabia, because of the timing. This says that this, later on we'll see this: that the star rose in the east, and they set, at the birth of Christ, and they set out to meet this new king. Because of the timing, the distance they had to travel upon first seeing the star, most think Babylon would have been where they started from. It's much further away than the area of Arabia. How many were there? The song says three. Why do people say three? Well, there's three gifts that will be mentioned later on, as you'll see. And there was probably even more than three gifts, to be honest. Three gifts doesn't necessarily mean that there were only three wise men that came. Back in those days, traveling was uh, quite dangerous, and the size of your group was a big deal. Uh, it, It tended to... Make your group more safety or more safe, and and there was safety in numbers. So it could have been a whole entourage of people that were coming uh, along with the Magi to see Jesus. We don't know. It was probably more than three. Uh, that comes from the idea of the gifts. Where did they come from? Or sorry, when did they come? Other verses in this chapter indicate that they were not at the birth of Jesus, as many nativity scenes might portray. A lot, a lot of us are, have, have learned that, but uh, we still love to put uh, the wise men there along with the sheep and the cattle and whoever else was in the manger scene. But if we look at, the, we look at some of the narrative here and, and we see in verses 8 and 9, we'll see later, there's, there's reference to Jesus as a child. When they come to Jesus, he's a child, which is a different Greek word than the word for infant. Later on, we see Jesus, age 12, in the temple sitting. He gets left at the temple, actually, uh, with the religious leaders, he's referred to with the same word, child. And so there's some, some indication there that he was a little bit older. He probably was under two, but, but not exactly an infant. We'll see later next week, too, in some of the passages that Levi gets into, some other, some other clues to the fact that he likely was not, uh, uh, the, the Magi were likely not there at the exact time of his birth. When did they come? I'm sorry, I keep reading these words wrong. Why did they come? The text tells us they came to Jerusalem, the capital of the Jewish nation. They were looking for the king of the Jews who had been recently born, which they knew about because of his star that rose or appeared in the east. Again, there's a lot of mystery around the idea of the Messiah having a star and the way it was sort of the star guided them to Jesus. Uh, when I think star, I think the sun. When I think the sun, I think you don't want to get near that. And how does that shine on one, only one thing? There's some mystery here about what all that means. But what's not mysterious is that they intended to worship this new king. They knew that a king, the king of the Jews had been born. They came a long way. They intended to worship him. Because of the prophecies about the timing of the coming Messiah made by Daniel when he was in Babylon, some wonder... If the Magi were anticipating this new king, and they'd sort of connected it with something related to the stars. Well, we can speculate on all this stuff, but Matthew doesn't seem too concerned with bringing this to like precision clarity, right? We often get fixated when we read the scriptures on what we don't know, what we don't see, but I would I would suggest that you know when we do that we can lose sight of what we know for sure. What do we know for sure here about these men? Here's the way I kind of phrase it. Gentiles from a faraway place with very little to no biblical insight have been led by God miraculously to seek out and worship Jesus as king. Gentiles from a faraway place, not a lot of biblical knowledge, kind of grabbing at a couple of things that they were seeing in the sky and maybe maybe a discerning from different books and stuff they had read and heard about. They're pulling all this together and and they're led by God to worship this baby. These are the most unlikely converts to believe in Jesus, the most unlikely people in the story. They travel miles and months on what seems like little and, and unclear information to bow and worship to a baby king. These guys must have had a big view of God. They pressed on, they persevered and took on so much to find him and to worship him. How big is your God? How big is your God? Proverbs 30 verse 4 says this, Who has gone up to heaven and come down? Who has gathered up the wind in the hollow of his hands? Who has wrapped up the waters in his cloak? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name and the name of his son? Tell me if you know. I love this little, uh, this little piece here in Proverbs. And just to think about it for a minute, who has gone up to heaven and come down? Do you know anyone who could just sort of kind of beam up and down between heaven and earth? Who has gathered up the wind in the hollow of his hand? If you ha- take your hand and just do this for a minute, this is like the hollow of your hand. Imagine all the wind in the world and in, in, in existence fitting right there. Obviously, this is not supposed to be so literal, but just think about it literally for a moment. He can put the wind of the whole universe in his hand like that. Who's wrapped up the waters in his cloak? Picture, um, picture uh, God's big robe or whatever, and he takes it and just like dips it in the ocean somewhere, and all of the ocean just soaks up into his cloak. Yeah, that's 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 the, that's who this God is. He's he's big. He's he's the creator. Who's established all the ends of the earth? Right. So. God can say, uh, land, go to this point and stop. That's when the water will take over. And over here, land, go to that point and stop. And then we'll skip a little bit and start another little thing over here. God can can do all that. That's who God is. Isaiah 40, verse 25 says this, to whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One. Let's carry on the story a little bit here and, and read more about what these magi did. So they come to Herod, they come to Jerusalem, and it says this in Matthew 2, verse 3 through 8. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, and the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. for For from you shall come a ruler." Who will shepherd my people Israel? Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I, may, uh, that I too may come and worship him. Let's back up to verse 3 here a little bit and talk about it. Why was Herod troubled when he heard from the Magi about the king of the Jews being born. And the thing that caught my attention, why was all Jerusalem also troubled? King Herod was sort of half Jewish, half Edomite. The Edomites were the descendants of Esau. But he also aligned himself with the Romans. So he was not really friendly with with the Jews. The Jews didn't like him too much. He was put in charge of Judea by Rome in 40 BC. And he had this history of just absolutely crushing any opposition to his rule. He was ruthless about that. He was the kind of guy who would always look over his shoulder thinking that someone might try to dethrone him. And that stuff happened all the time in the ancient world, so maybe you can't blame him for that. Hearing that a king of the Jews had been born would have been very unsettling for him. And all, you know, Jerusalem may have been troubled as well because of the cruelty and the wrath that might come down on the people at the threat of Herod, being overthrown. So the, 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 apparently the town knows what's going on here. And, and the word spreads that these guys have come looking for the king of the Jews. Let's pick up in verse 4. We see, we see here that Herod calls together the religious leaders, and he asks them if they know where the Messiah would be born. He might be able to put an end to all this rebellion before it even gets started. So the answer from the religious leader seems to be quite swift and then they quote from the great prophet Micah. And this is what they say. Uh, first they they name the city of Bethlehem and they and then they quote Micah 5:2. And you, O Bethlehem in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you, from Bethlehem, shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. I said this earlier but the prophecy from Micah here was quoted about seven hundred years before this very moment. That's amazing. These guys have been had been waiting. These guys knew about about this. The Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem, the same town where Israel's greatest king, King David, was from. And it's actually fascinating that Jesus was actually born here. God pulled a lot of strings and to pull this thing together. He threaded the needle and, and in terms of timing, because Mary and Joseph would not have been living in Nazareth and prepare, would not have been living in Bethlehem. They were actually in Nazareth preparing to have a baby there. So what happened? How did, how, did they, how did God get them to Bethlehem, to the place where they would, where it was prophesied that Jesus would be born? If you look over to Luke 2, you get more of the story. We don't have to turn there, but I'll just give you some of, some of the some of the pieces. Caesar declared a census in the world. He just wanted to count and register everyone in the world. You know, imagine, imagine someone saying that and how big of a job that would be. Everyone was required to go to their hometown. Joseph was from Bethlehem. He was of the lineage of King David. So he had to leave Nazareth and go to Bethlehem. That's a hundred mile journey. Imagine getting that a uh, letter in the mail or something like that, that you and your wife are gonna have to go a hundred miles, you know, r- right around the time that she's due to have a baby to report back to this uh, to this king that's far, far away that wants to know more about you know, the, the, the data on, on, on the world. Well, they got there. The city was so overwhelmed with people that there was actually no rooms for, for them to stay and no rooms to rent. So Mary gave birth in a manger. God moved the heart of the most powerful leader in the world to set Joseph and Mary in motion towards Bethlehem when they would probably have least, at the time when they probably have least preferred to go to their hometown, right? She's pregnant, it's uncomfortable. She's due here real soon. She's unmarried and with all your family and childhood friends around you, maybe ready to make their judgments about, about Mary. How big is your God? Job 42.2 says, I know that you can do all things no plan of yours can be thwarted. 2 Samuel seven twenty two says, how great you are, O sovereign God. There is no one like you. There is no God but you. God is big. He can do anything that he says he can. In Matthew 2, 7 through 8, there at the last part of that little, little passage, we see Herod giving the Magi insight into where the Messiah might be. And then he send, sends them off to, Beth, to Bethlehem. It says, he says to search carefully for the child. And he asks them to report back to them so that he too could worship the Messiah. This, of course, is a lie, as you'll learn more uh, next week. So the Magi go off. They search for Jesus in Bethlehem. It's about five miles south of Jerusalem. And uh, the story continues. Let's go to verse 9. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen, the star that they had seen when it rose and went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense and myrrh. Again, I'm, I'm so curious about this star that is going before them. What, what was that like? It rests over the place where Jesus was. Maybe that was just the town. Maybe it was the house exactly. Sally Lloyd-Jones in her book talks about a, like the star was like a spotlight, you know, highlighting God's son. I don't, there's, there's some theories on all that, but who really knows what that was like? I do love seeing verses like verse 10 in the Bible. What does it look like to rejoice exceedingly with great joy? I love the way he says that for joy, exceedingly, with great joy. That's so emphatic that it's funny. These guys were pumped to finally get to the end of their journey. This was the purpose that they had come. When they see Jesus, they will fall down and worship this young king, and they'll offer him and his family these expensive gifts. Well, what stands out here in stark contrast to the active pursuit of Jesus by these magi, is the apathetic posture of the religious leaders. These guys know the words in the book, but they don't seem to have a heart for God. They know about the prophecies in Daniel and the time of the Messiah is close. They know he's to be born in Bethlehem. They know, the, that they know about the Magi now. They're only five miles from Bethlehem and they don't send anyone to go search. The the religious leaders, I would say, are the most likely converts to believe in Jesus. Yet they seem so absent in their pursuit of him. Maybe even apathetic towards towards all this. Matthew will later record Jesus saying this, Matthew 16, two through three. This is Jesus speaking to the religious leaders. "'When it is evening, you say, "'It will be fair weather, for the sky is red, "'and in the morning it will be stormy today.'" For the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the sign of the times. Uh, Jill talked about earlier, but it was crazy two nights ago. I don't know if y'all lost power all day long like we did and lost cell phone service. But I grabbed my phone at three thirty and people were trying to call me and track me down. And um, yeah, I looked at the radar and it was red and threatening. You know and We've gotten pretty good at looking at weather, at least looking at it in hindsight, predicting some of it. We can't, can't do it perfectly for sure. Apparently, the religious leaders of the day, they became very good at understanding the weather. I don't know what systems they used or how they did that, but through some basic means in their day, they, they got good at that. But they had one job. The religious leaders, they had one real job, and they missed it. How did this happen? In another passage in John 5, Jesus, Jesus shares a similar sentiment, as it says in John 5, 39-40. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Yes, they know a lot of stuff about God. But do they really know him? They don't seek him. They don't submit to him. It's possible to be very religious and yet very lost, to be very knowledgeable, but very apathetic, to claim Christianity, but have a very small view of Christ. How big is your God? There's only two times in the Bible where it's recorded that Jesus was astonished or amazed. People all over the place are saying that Jesus is astonishing. They were astonished. They are amazed by the things that he does. But only two times is he actually expressing this sentiment. In Mark 6.6, 6, Jesus is astonished at the lack of faith in his Jewish hometown of Nazareth. He says, and he was, it was, he was amazed at their lack of faith in Mark 6.6. 6. The other time he's astonished is in Matthew 8.10. He's astonished at the faith of a Gentile Roman centurion in Capernaum. Matthew 8.10, when Jesus heard this, He was astonished and said to those following, I tell you, I have not anyone in Israel with such great faith. You can go back and read that story. Jesus is amazed and astonished when we have a big view of God. Not not amazed and astonished by people who have a low view or a small view, a lot of information, but do little with it. How big is your God? Our passage ends with the Magi doing what they always seem to do in this passage, which is remain sensitive to God leading them. Matthew 2.12, it says, And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So the Magi, they disobey a king's orders to serve the one true king. They had a big view of God. It influenced how they lived their life. How big is your God? I want to close here by just sharing two ways that you might respond this Christmas season to a big God. And the first one is this, to be astonished that you have been given the gift of faith. Coming to faith is this mysterious thing. What's, what's clear in Scripture is that it's a gift from God. Yes, we have a part in it, it seems. We we, we respond, but it's a gift from God. It's it's. It's not of our own doing. It's the greatest Christmas gift of all time. The situation with these Gentile Magi coming to faith in a faraway land, following a star to worship Jesus, it doesn't make a lot of sense unless you see that they received faith as a gift from God. They couldn't muster all this up on their own. There was too many you know, un- unclear things in-, in the picture here. It's a miracle that these guys came from where they did and end up worshiping Jesus. The same is true for anyone here who believes in Jesus. You've been given the gift of faith. And I want to encourage you to, to be astonished by that. Treasure it. Treasure the gift, that, that gift this Christmas. Cherish it as your most beloved gift. You remember the year when, uh, when the, the transition year as a kid, when the presents... <laughs> You know, go from, you know, toys and things to like socks and underwear, you know. And you're sort of like, man, what happened? You know, I, I wanted this and I wanted that. You know, all your all, of, all the things in your list are like, you know, $100 or more. Whether you're, you know, disappointed or overjoyed with the gifts you get this Christmas, I want to challenge you. Be astonished by the gift of faith that you've been given. Be overjoyed. Be content. Be be uh, fired up about the gift of faith this Christmas. If you haven't received the gift of faith yet, I invite you to ask God for it. I'd also love to talk to you about that, <laughs> and a lot of the leaders here at the church would love to talk to you about it and come alongside you in asking for the gift of faith. A second way to respond is to ask God to give you a bigger view of Himself. Here's one practical way that this is looking in my life right now. Um, It's when I think about my friends who seem far away from God. Do you have any friends or family members that seem far away from God? Could God give them the gift of faith? I'm asking God for a bigger view of him so that I I could believe and pray and see him move in my friends' lives. I went hiking with some international students who are not believers a few weeks ago, and I brought along a young Christian student from Jamaica that I've actually been discipling over the last year. We had a list of questions in the car that we were going to have. We had about an hour drive out, a couple-hour hike, hour drive back. We had a list of questions that we just printed out and and put in the car and and said, hey, if if the conversation ever gets dull, let's pull out this list of questions and just start talking. So one of the students from Hong Kong uh, really thought this was great. And he grabbed the list of questions and he uh, started asking, started kind of scanning them. And he asked his first question. This is what he said. "So, what experiences have shaped you the most in your life? And I'm driving the car and they're out there in the back seat. I got my buddy here and on the, on the, uh, shotgun. And I began to think in my head, this is an amazing opportunity to talk about Jesus and to give witness to what he's done in my life. But if I'm honest with you, I I had another voice in my head that was wrestling. I felt timid in that moment. This is kind of one of the reasons why I really wanted to be with these friends was to be able to talk about Jesus. But in that moment, I felt timid. I, I didn't want to stand out too much. I didn't want to be too different. I didn't want to be weird. I was wrestling with some fear in my heart. And in the space it took me to sort of process that with the Lord, my, again, young believer friend, jumped in and filled the space. And he just starts out and just right off the bat says, more than anything else in my life, coming to faith in Jesus Christ has shaped everything I, I, I believe. Has shaped the way that I orient my entire life now towards things that are eternal, things that really matter. And I was sort of like blown away by this by this guy and what he said. He just came out and said it. And it was so natural. Uh, I don't know if you're I don't know if you've ever done this, but it's, it's easy sometimes when you're with your friends who are believers to kind of talk real naturally about Christ, and then friends who are not, it's a little clunky, and maybe you're not saying it quite, quite the way that, 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 you, that, that you talk about Jesus with your Christian friends. And, and some, of that, some of that makes sense, but I was amazed at how my friend here was just being so natural and just talking about Jesus and giving witness to him in his life. He went on to describe in detail various areas of his life that Jesus was changing, and these guys in the back seat were just like eating it up. They're like, wow, that's so interesting. Wow, I'm so curious about that. Tell me more. The student had surpassed the teacher in that, in, 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 that, in that moment. I was blown away by all that. His courage inspired me to be bold. And actually, I was able to talk more openly about Jesus in my life throughout the day. And even got to talk multiple times in, in different, different levels about who Christ is and how he's changed our lives. We came to find out that these students in the car, three, of, three of, the, of the five, had actually never heard the good news of Jesus before. It always surprises me a little bit. I don't know, maybe because I grew up in the South. It always still hits me when someone says, I, I don't even know what that word gospel means. And so we got to talk about the gospel. These guys heard the gospel from different angles, from different perspectives we didn't baptize those guys in the, in the waterfall or anything at the end of the hike, uh, but we started a relationship, and we're, we're, there's open dialogue about who Jesus is and, and, and why he matters, and it's exciting, and this relationships are, are, these relationships are starting. Mark asked a question at church maybe a year or so ago that really still challenges me so much today. If God were to answer all your prayers from this week, how many people would have believed in Jesus? I'm sad to say that the answer is a big zero some weeks for me. I've started to pray for these international student friends of mine that I've met to believe in Jesus. I'm praying that God will give me bigger faith. There are weeks I'm tempted to believe they are too far and God can't do it. But how big is my God? The story of the Magi, it inspires me to keep praying for these students to come to faith. And for myself to see and to respond to God as he really is, a very big God who can do whatever he says that he will do. I love this verse, Jeremiah 32, 27. I am the Lord, the God of all mankind. Is anything too hard for me? The answer is a resounding no. Let me pray for us. Father, you are a big God. We see it all over the Christmas story. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to see you as you actually are. Help us to see you as you actually are. In Jesus' name, amen.